0: Welcome to Music History Monday for August 22nd, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Claude Debussy. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We celebrate the birth on August 22nd, 1862, 160 years ago today, of the French composer and pianist Claude Debussy. Born in the Paris suburb of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, he died in Paris on March 25th, 1918, at the age of 55. Let's tell it like it is. Monsieur Debussy was one of the great ones. For all of its sensual beauty, and Debussy did indeed compose some of the most gorgeous music ever written. His music is among the most original, revolutionary, and influential ever composed. At a time when young composers like Igor Stravinsky, 1882 to 1971, and Béla Bartók, 1881 to 1945, were casting about for new musical models, it was Debussy's music that became their essential inspiration. Along with Stravinsky and Arnold Schoenberg, 1874 to 1951, Debussy was the most influential composer of the 20th century. Among the radical triumvirate of Debussy, Schoenberg, and Stravinsky. It was Debussy who was the breakout composer, the first composer to cultivate a musical language that broke free of the melodic and harmonic traditions of tonality, traditions that had governed western music since the 15th century. That the musical revolution started in France is most significant, for reasons to be discussed in just a moment. Our game plan. Here's how we're going to approach our celebration of Debussy and his remarkable music. Today's Music History Monday post will be dedicated to understanding the anti-German origins of his distinctly French musical revolution, and we'll start to get to know Debussy as a person. In tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post, we will pick up from where we leave off today and then we'll tackle Debussy's Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn of 1894 and his Twelve Etudes for Piano of 1915, for which I will recommend recordings. France. According to the musicologist Arthur Locke, writing in the musical Quarterly in April 1920, quote, "...German tendencies, both in music and literature, strongly affected the course of the Romantic movement in France." Merci, Professor Locke. I needed someone else to say that because, for your average Francophile, it is heresy to even imply that the French turned to German models for anything. But it is true that for the first 70 years of the 19th century, many French composers looked to Germany for their inspiration. For example, the French romantic Hector Berlioz, 1803 to 1869, bemoaned the state of music and opera in France and Italy and looked to Germany for his inspiration. And it's no overstatement to say that in the 1850s and 1860s, young French composers were as addicted to the music dramas of Richard Wagner as they were to claret, cigarettes, and to arguing with one another. But that all changed in 1870, a year that would haunt Europe well into the 20th century. 1870 was the year that the issue and conflict that would upend Europe for the next 75 years began. The issue was the unification of Germany and the conflict was the Franco-Prussian War between France and Germany. The unification of Germany. What today is called Germany is an area of 137,847 square miles or, if you prefer, 357,022 kilometers smack dab in the middle of Europe, an area occupied for millennia by German-speaking peoples. Since the days of ancient Rome, it has been understood that the best way to deal with these German-speaking peoples was to divide and conquer. It was understood that a united Germania in the center of Europe could spell nothing but trouble for the territories arrayed around it. Between 962 and 1806, Most of what today is called Germany was known as the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire was, as the old line went, neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Rather, it was an amalgam, depending upon how you choose to count them, of between 300 and 500 states of various sizes, some ruled by princes, others by the church, and still others by their merchant class. The fragmentary nature of the Holy Roman Empire served its neighbors well, and those neighbors, including France and the Russian Empire, did everything in their power to keep Germania as fragmented as possible. Oh, the best laid plans. What no one counted on was the French Revolution and the emergence a few years later of Napoleon Bonaparte, 1769 to 1821, who wiped the Holy Roman Empire off the map on August 6, 1806. In its place was created what was called the Confederation of the Rhine, a French satellite that included much of what today is Germany. Other German states, most notably Bavaria and Prussia, Prussia being the largest and most powerful of them all, became semi-autonomous kingdoms allied to France. Napoleon destabilized Europe almost entirely, and nowhere more so than in German-speaking lands. His wars released a latent German nationalism that could not be put back into the bottle, and his defeat left the state of Prussia known as an army in search of a country, as the preeminent power in Central Europe. The indispensable man in Germany's unification was the Prussian statesman Otto von Bismarck, 1815 to 1898. Bismarck, a master and visionary politician, was appointed Minister-President of Prussia in 1862. He understood entirely the advantages of a unified German nation and began to engineer alliances between the various German states. What Bismarck required to anneal the German states into a single nation united behind Prussia was a war. A war that could unify the German states in a struggle against a non-German enemy. It was the French who provided the opportunity and Bismarck got his war. The Franco-Prussian War, 1870 to 1871. If any single historical event can be said to have precipitated World War I and the seemingly endless series of disasters that resulted from World War I, including the Russian Revolution and Stalinism, World War II and the Cold War, It was the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and 1871. The immediate cause of the war was a dispute between France and Prussia as to who should assume the Spanish throne following the deposition of Queen Isabella II in 1868. This issue of Spanish succession was but a pretext. Bismarck used the tension between France and Prussia to bait the French into war. The French emperor, Napoleon III, 1808 to 1873, born Franz Xaver Winterhalter, nephew of you-know-who, had his own imperial designs, and he perceived the ever-expanding power of Prussia to be a direct threat to his ambitions, thinking he was his uncle reincarnate. Napoleon III decided to put the Prussians in their place. Bismarck played the French like a drum, and France declared war on Prussia on July 19, 1870. The French were not just beaten. They were humiliated time and again, culminating in the Battle of Sedan, on September 1st and 2nd, 1870, which ended when Napoleon III himself surrendered along with 104,000 of his men. The Allied German armies marched on Paris, which was put under siege on September 19th, 1870. Having consumed as much dog au vin, catatouille, and pigeon bourguignon as they could stomach, the starving Parisians surrendered their city on January 28, 1871. Meanwhile, ten days before the surrender, on January 18, 1871, a united German empire was proclaimed at the Palace of Versailles, the location chosen to rub Fleur de sel into France's open wound. On February 17, 1871, the victorious Germans marched through Paris. France agreed to pay a 5 billion franc war indemnity to Germany and ceded most of the eastern French states of Alsace and Lorraine to Germany, areas that would not be returned to France until 1919. A brief but brutal uprising occurred in Paris between March and May of 1871, the so-called Paris Commune. When the smoke finally cleared... Tens of thousands more French were dead, and the French Third Republic was declared. The Third Republic remained in power until July 10, 1940, when it was disbanded by the Nazis following their invasion and defeat of France. Germany and post Franco Prussian War French public opinion. Remember when I quoted Arthur Locke at the top of this post? quote, German tendencies, both in music and literature, strongly affected the course of the Romantic movement in France, unquote. Well, not after 1871. The hostility the French, and particularly the Parisians, felt towards Germany and things German in the years after 1871 was epic. An immediate upshot of this was the founding in 1871 of the National Society of Music by a group of young French composers that included Camille Sassons, Emmanuel Chabrier and Gabriel Faure. The avowed mission of the National Society was to bring an end to the pervasive influence of German music on French music in general and the influence of Richard Wagner in particular. In order to achieve this, the National Society vowed to cultivate a distinctly French musical art. Their inspiration, like that of contemporary French visual artists, poets, and writers, was the French language itself. It has been said that Italy gave us the Renaissance and France just about everything else. And how can we argue with that? Essential to French culture is élan. Stylishness, taste, poise, sophistication, panache, grace, finesse, all for its own sake. Along with the Enlightenment, among the many gifts the French have given the world is a standard for cuisine, style, and design that for hundreds of years has been considered the last word in taste, elegance, and chic. But perhaps the single most beautiful thing France has given the world is the French language itself, a breathtakingly fluid amalgam of vowel and diphthong ever so slightly articulated by the most gentle of consonants. It is a language as silken, as languorous, and as highly nuanced as a 1961 Chateau Margaux a language that lies at the very heart of what it is to be French. It is a language that stands in complete opposition to German, with its brief bordering on invisible vowels and its explosive, guttural, say-it-don't-spray-it consonants. This issue of language is of greatest importance because, as a result of the Franco-Prussian War, Late 19th-century French composers rejected German-slash-Austrian compositional models and techniques in favor of creating a uniquely French sort of music, one based on the blended vowels, the color, and the characteristic nuance of the French language itself. The French musical renaissance, triggered by the Franco-Prussian War, was brought to its culmination by the Germanophobic, Paris-born and bred, and always fascinating and marvelously disreputable Claude Debussy, whose revolutionary new music created an entirely new musical language. Claude Debussy, 1862 to 1918, Modernism's First Modernist. In 1910, the 48-year-old Debussy laid out his modernistic bona fides in no uncertain terms when he wrote, The century of aeroplanes deserves its own music. As there are no precedents, I must create anew, unquote. As that quote reveals... Debussy was not only aware of the technical, intellectual, and philosophical spirit of the new 20th century, but that as an artist, it was imperative that his music reflect something of the new century. In a word, it was imperative that his music be relevant. Born on August 22, 1862, 160 years ago today, Debussy died in 1918 from colorectal cancer having survived one of the first colostomy operations ever performed some two years before. Despite the hauteur Debussy would affect throughout his life, he came from an extremely modest background. At the time of his birth, his father was managing a china shop and his mother was working as a seamstress. The Franco-Prussian War affected the eight-year-old Debussy and his family personally as his father was imprisoned for a period in 1871 for alleged revolutionary activities in association with the Paris Commune. In 1872, at the age of 10, Debussy entered the Paris Conservatoire as a student of piano and composition. He was one of those students that drive teachers batty, devastatingly witty, borderline disrespectful, artistically audacious, smug, arrogant, and clearly a genius. From the beginning of his compositional career, he was drawn to strange harmonies and harmonic progressions for the sheer sensuality of their sound, a very French-language-inspired love of coloristic nuance for its own sake. One of Debussy's teachers was a pedant named Émile Durand, Debussy's fellow student, Antoine Banis, described a typical lesson this way, quote, At the end of the lesson, when Durand had examined all our exercises with scrupulous care, he would linger over the correction of young Claude's work with almost epicurean enjoyment. Severe criticisms and angry pencil marks rained upon the pupil's head and the music paper. However, as soon as the teacher's natural prejudice was overcome, he would reread in silent concentration the pages he had so cruelly mutilated, murmuring with an enigmatic smile, Of course, it is all utterly unorthodox, but still, it is very ingenious. Unquote. According to Debussy's biographer, Léon Valhars, It was in just this way that the master was gradually tamed by his pupil. Priceless Recollections Debussy's love of color and nuance, which are so intrinsic to the French language and the French cultural and intellectual soul, seem to have been hardwired into him. A wonderful story about... Debussy's Gallic love of nuance is told by Alma Mahler, 1879 to 1964, the wife of the composer and conductor Gustav Mahler, 1860 to 1911. In April of 1910, the Mahlers journeyed to Paris for a performance of Gustav's Symphony No. 2. Alma's impressions and recollections of Debussy are priceless. Quote, while the rehearsals were on, the composer and organist, Gabriel Piernay, gave a party in Mahler's honor and invited Debussy, Paul Ducat, Gabriel Faure, and the Clemenceaus. Uh, for our information, Paul Ducat composed The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and Georges Clemenceau served as Prime Minister of France twice, from 1906 to 1909, and then again from 1917 To 1920. Debussy's strong personality and the beauty of his head were very impressive. Yeah, Debussy had a double forehead. He, Debussy, brought his second wife who was said to be very wealthy. He sat next to me at dinner and I noticed that he only took the minutest helping of any dish. When Madame Pianet tried pressing him to eat more, his face took on a look of pain, but his abstemoniousness had no ill effects. He was a broad-shouldered, ponderous man. Alma continues, quote, Ducat told me in an undertone that when they were schoolboys together and provided by their mothers with money to buy their mid-morning lunches, they all selected the largest confections except Debussy. He always chose the smallest and most expensive, for even as a child he was nauseated by bulk. That evening, too, we were told that Debussy's ill-treatment had almost been the death of his first wife. Her name was Rosalie Texier. She was known as Lily. It was a youthful marriage on both sides, and they were very poor. She couldn't endure her life with him or life without him, so she took poison. He went up to her very calmly and took what money she had on her before sending for a doctor. She saw and heard it all, for she was not unconscious but temporarily paralyzed. She recovered from the poison and was cured as well of her love for Debussy, from whom she was divorced. Alma's is a fabulous story, but it is not entirely accurate. Lily and Debussy were married on October 19, 1899. However, Debussy, who was incapable of what the literature calls selfless love, got bored and took up with a woman named Emma Bardock, who eventually became his second wife in the summer of 1904 after not quite five years of marriage to Lily. He told Lily he was moving out. She threatened suicide at least four times. Finally, on October 18th, 1904, on the eve of their fifth wedding anniversary, Lily went to the Place de la Concorde in Paris, pointed a handgun at her heart, and fired. Incredibly, she survived, but with a souvenir. The bullet remained lodged in one of her vertebrae for the remainder of her life. According to Debussy's friend, the Scottish-born American soprano Mary Garden, 1874-1967, quote, laying underneath Lily's left breast was a round, dark hole where the bullet had gone in, without touching anything vital. That little token of her love for Claude Debussy stayed with her until she died in 1932, For our information, Lily and Debussy were divorced on August second, nineteen 1905. He married Emma Bardock, 1862 to 1934, in 1908. When we resume in Tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes, we will rejoin the young Debussy at the Paris Conservatoire and his rapid development into a shockingly modern composer, a modernism based, above all, on the characteristics of the French language itself. Thank you. To sample and download one, or all, of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.